Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today on Truth and Movies, German director Christian Petzold finishes his Love in Times of Oppressive Systems trilogy with the drama Transit. It's Tarantino Unchained. Leo and Brad star in the glorious, pulpy and certainly fictional Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You could do anything you want to him. Throw him off a building, right? Light him on fire. And in Film Club, we're assessing the state of Tate with the Wrecking Crew. Wise man, enjoy pleasure before business. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello there, movie truthers. It's Michael Leader here in the host's seat this week, sitting across from head honcho of Little White Lies himself, David Jenkins. Hey. And Hannah Woodhead as well from Little White Lies. Hey. Welcome I thought both. you were going to call me like mini honcho. <laughs> Han honcho. Han honcho. Han honcho. Han honcho. <laughs> Michael, I've got to ask about this new thing of movie truthers. Can uh, we not call the, the, all the listeners out there in Podland movie truthers because they listen to truth and movies? Ah, but the, the intimation is something a little bit more sinister, maybe. Does it have like, to be sinister? It's almost like... People who deny the existence of truth and movies <laughs> <laughs> through well, some weird conspiracy theory. We have never taken a photograph in this in these walls, so that's it might true. Not exist. <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, maybe you could let us know. Like the so so our, our fans are called truthers <laughs> or movie truthers. Movie, movie truthers. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, the listeners to truth and movies. Listeners, let us know what you think about this appellation. If you want to be called this or something else, at the usual channels, at Truth and Movies on Twitter, probably the best place right now, and maybe at Davy Jenkins into that. <laughs> Yeah, as well. I'd love to know. I genuinely would. <laughs> but speaking of listener correspondence, we did have one from last week's episode from Ryan saying, after listening to, listening to the latest pod and Sophie telling everyone to treat yourself to his girl Friday, I thought I would shamelessly mention that the Criterion Blu-ray is £10 at FOP at the moment. That's a bargain. Oof. Bargain, right? For get, a classic get down there. Exactly. But anyway, any other business before we dive into this week's episode? Any news on the Twilight Horizon? We're hoping the weather improves, aren't we, Hannah? Because this weekend we're going to Green Man Festival. Yeah, uh, our friend of the podcast, Jake Cunningham, has been sending me weather updates every day. And the Brecon Beacons are looking rainy. Mm -hmm. So um, it's going to be wet for us. We've got our wellies packed. But yeah, um, Adam Woodward has programmed the cinema program i guess cinema tent. tent is it a tent cinema drone the cinema wow like thunderdome yes at green man he does it sort of every year and mm -hmm. this year he's uh, really pulled it out of the bag we've got um beats a preview of the souvenir i believe wow. i'm pretty sure missing link as well for mm -hmm. the little ones when you're hungover and you're like okay, get the child in a tent so we don't have to 
talk to it for two hours. <laughs> and of course, uh, you will be there with uh, Jake Cunningham. I will be, yes. <clears throat> Wearing my other podcast hat for Ghibliotech, we're going to be presenting a 30th anniversary screening of Hayao Miyazaki's Kiki's Delivery Service. And then afterwards, we're going to have a chat on stage with you, Hannah. Yeah. We're going to be taking to the stage at the Cinemadrome, Thunderdome style. I'm very excited. I love that movie. That's going to be really round because having been to the festival many times, it's very, very, very super kid-friendly. Mm-hmm. But n- definitely not in a negative way. Like, And any like animations is like, mm, we could go and see this like <laughs> sludgy rock band playing some dirge over in this tent here. <laughs> or, and the, with the kids like nipping at our uh, Mac saying, we want to go and get some food or we want to go do something else. So like, yeah, those films will like pack out. Mm-hmm. And if it's raining <clears> as well, I guess. Oh, brilliant. We're Good. Gonna... Catch your audience. That's Absolutely what we want. no pressure whatsoever. <laughs> but if you are down there at Green Man listeners, come down and say hi. Shelter from the storm, perhaps. <laughs> But we should talk about this week's films. We're going to talk a lot about Tarantino and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood later on. But let's start first with Christian Petzold's Transit. When fleeing Paris after a German invasion, Georg escapes to Marseille, assuming the identity of a dead author whose papers he possesses. Everything changes, though, when Georg falls in love with the mysterious Marie, who is desperate to find her missing husband. We'd have a clip for this one. It's in German and French. But David, give us a taste of who Christian Petzold is. Maybe listeners might have seen his previous film, Phoenix, that came out a couple of years ago. But what's his vibe? Yeah, so he's had a couple of films come out in the UK in the past. I got on board with him with, with this film he did called Yella. Y-E-L-L-A. It's his take on like Carnival of Souls, like a oh. modern art house take on Carnival of Souls where right. you're following this woman and you kind of don't know if she's dead or alive, essentially. And, um, yeah, he's always someone who toys with genre. I've interviewed him before and he is like one of these guys who is intimidatingly intelligent but very, very generous as well. You can imagine him being like a professor of something. You know, he's so knowledgeable about film, literature history, politics, philosophy. I mean, he's got all the key bases Mm. very, very Mm. well covered. And one of the great things about his movies is is he's not someone who is like, I'm going to take this vast wealth of knowledge that I have and just sort of throw it up there on the screen. And if if you're not on the level, then that's your problem. Mm. His films are are very sort of welcoming and and I I think he, he kind of mixes big ideas with with quite sort of superficial entertainment elements as well. He had this film called Barbara set in the during the kind of post-war period which ended up being a kind of really big hit for him. He has a, a muse an actress called Nina Hoss who's in many of his films although not in this mm-hmm. this new one. Phoenix from from 2014 was I thought one of the best films of that year and I was super excited to see this one but it's a weird thing where like I don't know like it feels like it, it's happening more often where we have these weeks where you have this one giant behemoth <laughs> coming out that everyone's eyes are on, that everyone's kind of slathering over. The anticipation is, is super high. But then, you you know, you have to... It's our job to do the due diligence mm-hmm. and make sure people see, you know, maybe once they've seen the big one, you know, if they've got a bit of extra change in their pocket, that, well, you know, what's the next option? And, and you know, this would definitely be it, I think. Right. So is part of what... I think has been termed as the Berlin School, which is a group of German filmmakers who are looking at ideas of identity in kind of post-war Germany and Mm. and the effect that the war has had on the German character and all these ideas play up in these films. Mm. And yeah, Transit is is one of those films. It's kind of 
you might call it a metafiction. It's mm-hmm. like a a story that is ostensibly taking place during the the sort of mid to late period of the Second World War, during the the sort of Nazi occupation of France, and the sort of how that is expanding across the across the country. But actually, it's filmed in contemporary mm-hmm. era Marseille, and you know you you have all these anachronisms you, you know you have cars and he's eating wine and pizza in a rest in a little kind of trattoria restaurant and it's not too over the top it's not like they've got mobile phones and mm-hmm. tweeting it's not he's not sort of pushing that idea of like it's modern times man but the film is essentially a kind of everyone's trying to get the last boat out of Marseille to America into freedom and it's this bureaucratic nightmare of securing papers and transit forms and trying to make it as official as you can even if you're riding under some, you know, someone else's name and it's this idea of it really wasn't that simple to escape you know just just get out and people are kind of always asking is there a better option than walking over the Pyrenees mm-hmm. into Spain you know like yeah I, I thought this was really great film mm-hmm. really really great oh, terrific Hannah so did you see this Back at, was it Berlin, was it the right yeah, premiered? Berlin last mm-hmm. year, so it's been a while. And actually, David told me to go and watch this. I hadn't seen any pets old at the time. And I was underwhelmed, shall we say, mm-hmm. uh, on that cold day in Berlin in a theatre about nine o'clock in the morning. I was just, I think, I just kind of wasn't in the right headspace, maybe. Right. And even though it's only about one hour 40, I was like, this mm-hmm. feels so long and I don't understand what's happening. And- Can I just say, I had an almost identical experience with Barbara. Ah. Okay. Like, I saw Barbara in Berlin and was a bit like, this is so dull. <laughs> <laughs> but revisited it later and had yeah, a exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. in uh, preparation for this podcast. And having seen literally everyone say how great this mm-hmm. film was and me sort mm-hmm. of thinking oh, maybe I'm an idiot <laughs> and, I, and I should have loved this film. And lo and behold, I rewatched it at the weekend and it is, it's really good. When I was in Cannes earlier this year, I saw um, the new Terence Malick, which sounds like I'm just flexing now, but there is a point <laughs> to this. Uh, and Franz Rogowski plays like a, a supporting role in that. And I was like, oh yeah, the guy from Transit. Yeah, I remember yeah. him. And then watching this again, I was like, oh, he's just really good in everything mm-hmm. he does. He's got these kind of huge like bug eyes that kind of like endear you to him. And I think the character of uh, Georg mm-hmm. is so kind of hapless and trodden down by life. And he kind of walks with like, you know, his shoulders up by his neck. And just seeing him kind of stood next to um, Paula Beer, who's this, you know, tall, very beautiful woman who is kind of in dire straits. There's something about that contrast between the two. It's been compared a lot to Casablanca, but, you know, he's no Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> Paul is there. Yeah. Cut out the pause. He's absolutely no Ingrid Bergman, really, is he? <laughs> she, she absolutely is Ingrid Bergman, mm. but... Um, Actually, watching it again, I was surprised at how simple a story it is. It's it's a story about a man trying to get to a destination mm-hmm. and hearing these stories from all the people around him. There's this woman who has been left behind by her friend and she's looking after these two like beautiful dogs. And there's this beautiful quote in the film, I think, from the narrator who says, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something like, he realised he was in a port and ports are a place for stories and who was he to deny them their stories and yeah it is really like 
the second time around, it, it, it just zipped by. I was mm-hmm. having not a great time because it's a story essentially about ethnic cleansing. But um, mm-hmm. I don't want to be one of those people that says this feels like a really important film for now. But it kind of does. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's based on a story by Anna Segers, which was written in 1944 in the aftermath of World War Two. But it is still exactly the, the kind of thing that is happening today. And you can imagine this exact scenario in countries across the world you can imagine these exact conversations going on and I really yeah I think it's just a really beautiful film that everyone should go and watch regardless of what they're going to do with the Quentin Tarantino go and watch Transit. Well, I think that's the whole thing about the the setting mm-hmm. and it's kind of gently pushing that idea of like universality and linking it to the sort of migrant crisis quote unquote that's happening now so and this idea of trying to escape from Europe or escape you know being nudged around countries and that sort of danger you find yourself in every day and this idea of the police siren just Mm. stopping you in your tracks whatever you're doing Mm -hmm. Um, I think that sense you get for the danger but also the monotony is really interesting you know I think so many films about not about the holocaust specifically but about people trying to flee an area very like you know, oh, are they, they going to make it? Are yeah. they going to make it? And they kind of use the drama and the tension to, you know, put you on the edge of your seat. But in this, you just really get a sense for kind of how demoralising it is and how these people were treated like cattle mm-hmm. and, you know, how that kind of plays on someone's psyche and makes them kind of feel like stuck in this Kafka-esque nightmare where they go to a building every day and they stand in a queue and then nothing happens and they go back and do the same thing every single day. And you said the conflict and tension comes from... Georg is given a get-out-of-France-free card by Mm. being allowed to assume the identity of this dead author. But instead, he's racked with guilt and indecision as to whether he should go, he should leave. He strikes up these friendships and relationships with with people in Marseille who don't have it as lucky as he does. And instead, it's this meditation on being the one that gets out versus the one that can't get out. When you put it like that, it makes it sound like quite a kind of Hollywoodian film. Mm -hmm. Like, you get (laughs) the guy who is is out for himself... And for self-preservation, who, through his kind of imposed stay in this port town, waiting for his ship to sail, he learns the the value of of, of humanity and uh, and uh, empathy, and becomes the man who basically gives everything up for for his friends. And uh, is that is that too spoilery? No. Well, you know, he learns that other people have similar needs to him, and yeah. and he can see that maybe other people have. There's a lot of learning going on, I guess, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, <laughs> that makes it sound extremely cheesy, and it's not. And I think the film is really focused on kind of chronicles the process of a change of heart, of someone actually learning and developing and building on their own personal philosophy of life, and you know this idea of seeing people's personal tragedies in this bigger context and wondering the price of his of personal sacrifice mm-hmm. as well. And again, everything is so downplayed it's not a melodrama although it does have these kind of really kind of emotional moments in the film I don't mean to talk of melodrama in a pejorative I love melodrama but like (laughs) it's super subtle I think and every turn it moves away from what you'd expect from the genre it may be playing within as you say melodrama war movie or noir basically uh, being a person who's moving through these structures larger themselves it's the anti-Casablanca really because (laughs) in this world that Petzold paints in this adaptation that you can't make grand heroic statements you can't 
you have these cool oh. reveals and single lines of dialogue and that, so on. I think it probably is a spoiler, but there's a great bit later on where he does something quite selfless for mm. someone else and has to disguise the action. Yeah. And he kind of makes his peace with knowing that the person he's helping is going to think he's a horrible person. Mm-hmm. And there's no kind of, you know, there's no... Georg is, is kind of destined to go down in history as, as no one. Mm-hmm. Not go down in history, I guess. He's just another guy who will get stuck in Marseille and no one will remember him. And it's, you know, I think it's quite refreshing in that respect. It's just about the the many, many thousands of people who just live their lives waiting to get to a better place and kind of never get there, really. Mm-hmm. Is that a spoiler? I, I don't mean, think it's a spoiler. It, no, it, this no. is a hard film to spoil, really, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's more about the atmosphere, man. It's, you know... <laughs> but, yeah, I think that's one of the things I really love about it. I think you kind of touch on it there, is this idea of, on one side, it's kind of toying with the classics and noir and mm-hmm. Hollywood romance, wartime romance. But on the other... It's really about these very kind of small logistics and bureaucratic questions, things that go wrong, ways that you can't rely on people to just do a very simple thing Mm -hmm. that you would never really see in a Hollywood film. Mm -hmm. And it kind of melds those two things together. It's one of those films where I'm just like totally locked in there and I just feel like every single line, (coughs) every shot has just been very, very well thought through and, Mm -hmm. and, and perfectly sculpted to fit the film and it, it is adding to a kind of bigger picture so i'm expecting ones or twos here score wise <laughs> from you david what scores would you give for in anticipation enjoyment in retrospect i'd probably say anticipation was probably like very high five mm-hmm. i've liked his films in the past and i think he's someone who's well overdue a big kind of retrospective i mean i've been very effusive i know <laughs> but I, I, I maybe didn't quite like this to the levels i liked phoenix because i think Phoenix has this utterly jaw-dropping like final scene. It's a kind of mic drop finale. Okay. Whereas I feel that the finale, the, the sort of final few shots here, where everything is tight, it's such a delicate film that, and every shot does count so much that there's a few final scenes that just don't. They just leave it a little loose for me, mm. and it's probably like four point four four nine 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 nine. It's it's so close to a five, but it's it's not quite for me. Okay. And then a four. Yeah, five, four, four. Hannah, I'm expecting your retrospect to go up, I, I guess. Based uh, on well, I wasn't research. sure if I should do it from my rewatch or from my Your first entire watching. relationship with the film, maybe. <laughs> okay. I don't know. So I guess it was like a three in anticipation. I normally trust David's judgment when he tells me I should watch something. Mm-hmm. Normally. Wow. Um, and then I'm going to say it was a three for enjoyment the first time. <laughs> This is getting complex now. I feel like I'm having to give two. But um, then in retrospect, yeah, definitely a four. I think I got so much more out of it the second time around. And it really does kind of prove that if you're flip-flopping on a film like, ooh, didn't think it was that good, I think it does benefit you massively to go back and watch again sometimes. Mm. There is a case for like festivals being great places to launch movies. And mm. I think that Transit is an example of a film. And, and I think all of his films, mm-hmm. they're so delicate and subtle that I think that kind of glitzy context where you have people rushing out forming an opinion like as they're sort of getting up from their chair it's just not the right way to see it really well it's funny you mentioned that because you could also apply similar logic to the film we're about to talk Indeed. about next yeah. but first I'll say 334 for me on transit I think this is a film that especially that decision to not set it in the present but just use present day setting for this wartime tale 
makes it a real thinker really is growing in my mind in it's very i mean i think it's quite a nice segue to this the film we're about to follow because i mean you know two films that are kind of dealing with history in a very personal way and mm-hmm. and sort of subverting the what we know as the historical reality into something more personal and our next film this week is the playmobile movie yes <laughs> <laughs> no we've got our transit papers from marseille we're going across the atlantic to america for quentin tarantino's once upon a time in hollywood Nineteen sixty nine, Los Angeles. Leonardo DiCaprio is down on his luck TV actor Rick Dalton, while Brad Pitt is Cliff Booth, his longtime stunt double come driver. Together they make their way through an industry that is changing rapidly as the end of the decade looms and the cult of Charles Manson brews on the fringes of Hollywood society. Here's a clip featuring Rick trying to get Cliff a gig on a show. I'm asking you to help me out, man. If the, if the answer's no, the the answer's no. Not not no with excuses. Hey man. This ain't a Andy McLaughlin picture, you know. And I can't afford to hire a bunch of guys that smoke cigarettes and sit around talking to each other all day on the chance that I might use them. I got a four-man team here, Rick. If I need more than that, I got to get it approved. And, you know, I, I, I got to look after my dudes. Hey, hey and, and if your dudes were a better match for me, I'd say, oh, okay, you got me. But, but, but that, that's not the case, and you know it. He, he's a great match for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, no. Hey, you could do anything you want to him. So throw him off a building, right? Light him on fire. Hit him with a Lincoln, right? Get creative. Do whatever you want. He's just he's happy for the opportunity. Rick? Yeah. I don't dig him. And I don't dig the vibe he brings on a set. Well, Hannah, I think you dig this one, didn't you? you your review yeah. you called it wry, self-aware, uncharacteristically sweet. Yeah. Mm. Quote me on that. <laughs> now, I'm a big um, Tarantino. I was going to say Tarantino head. That's not what they call themselves. I'm a big Tarantino fan. I have been since I was a kid, just sort of first getting into films. I remember watching Pulp Fiction for the first time on a DVD that I begged my mum to rent from the library. And I was like, what? This is crazy. Why isn't everyone always talking about this movie? This is insane. Um, and then my brother... <laughs> <laughs> paid he was 18 at the time and he bought my tickets for Inglorious Bastard so I could go and watch that when I was 16 and again had a very similar experience in that I was just spellbound and I think his films are a kind of because they're so ubiquitous and readily available they are a gateway drug if you're a teenager from a small town who wants to get into film doesn't really know where to start you kind of start with the Tarantinos and the Scorseses of the world and you watch their films and you see things and you think, oh, I wonder what that is. You Google it, you find another 20 filmmakers you want to watch. So for me, you know, I can't really uh, underestimate mm-hmm. or undersell rather how excited I was to uh, see this in Cannes, despite the fact that our seats were not great after yeah. two hours of queuing, kind of being sat at a, a right angle yeah. <laughs> to the screen, but um, didn't impact enjoyment at all. I had a absolutely amazing time with this film mm-hmm. I think it is truly one of his best works to date I think it is as I said in my review I think it's doing some things that he hasn't done before and overall it's just a really like beautiful lovely bromance film really <laughs> more than anything <coughs> and that's not what I expected when it was like yeah Charles Manson yeah, yes Sharon Tate 
that's what we're going for. I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be terrible and incredibly poor taste. But I think he's really pulled it out of the bag. Well, that's what this film is. It's, it's the majority of the film. It's a long film. It's mm. structured like a hangout movie, not too dissimilar maybe to Jackie Brown, maybe, where really the plot doesn't come into it until the back half of the film. And instead yeah. you're just hanging out with Leo and Brad. You are, yeah. And who doesn't want to do that? I think Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth are two of the most lovely Tarantino characters ever. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no kind of... Uh, Vince and Jules bravado here it's just two guys who really care about each other and really don't kind of know what they do without each other Mm -hmm. I was going to say a spoiler then I'm not going to say it Um, I think the sort of chemistry that those two have is so easy and winning and they're so inherently charming you almost kind of go because you want to just watch them for, Mm -hmm. for two and a half hours and it totally delivers on that front and I think this is easily the best that DiCaprio's been, you know, in absolutely years. I think there's been a lot of, like, talk around um, maybe he should have won an Oscar for this instead of The Revenant. He Who may knows? still, he win, may an still win an Oscar for this. But I think definitely, yeah, this is kind of him at his, the height of his powers. He just doesn't seem to care, like, you know, feel it as deeply. It's not like, mm, yes, I'm a serious actor. He's just loose and having fun with it. And same with Brad, I think... Brad is the star of the show here. Cliff Booth is like, he's just so cool. Mm-hmm. Every time I try and analyse the character in a scholarly way, I'm like, yeah, but he's just really cool. He's just, you know, he hangs around in his Hawaiian shirts, cruising around like down there, Rodeo Drive, and he's just, he's got this really cute dog called Brandy who he's got trained. And he's just, there's something about him. He really. I can't, it's one of those roles where you just think I can't imagine anyone else doing Mm -hmm. this. And I think there's been a lot of uh, people who are quite surprised by the lack of Tarantinoisms in this film, the lack of kind of ultraviolence. There is a bit, but not what I think we've come to Mm -hmm. expect. But um, it really does feel like a kind of grown up Tarantino film. It feels like he's been doing this how many years? 30 years? And. This is kind of the sum of all those things he's learned and all the controversy he's courted and all the stupid, inane things he's said over the years. I think this really does feel to me like he's trying to iron some things out, work, out, work some things out, and it, it really does. It all sort of works for me on yeah. that level. I mean, already there are three or four or five hot-button topics in this film people are pulling apart for hot, all their hot takes. We don't come the to us for hot takes. Been, uh, there's been quite a lot about this film. It was a lot before the film even premiered mm-hmm. and it's kind of not started. And I don't think Tarantino does himself any favours. He can be very defensive mm-hmm. and I think critics are well within their rights to have issues with this film, to have issues with how Tarantino uh, uses violence against women, how he uses female characters in general and particularly the uh, portrayal of Bruce Lee in this film has kind of garnered a lot of um, negative press. Bruce Lee's daughter spoke out and said that she was very upset with how he's portrayed in the film. But I am kind of glad that, you know, in, in in this economy we have films like this that kind of feel like they're trying to say something and mm-hmm. do something and can sort of generate that this level of discourse around them. And a filmmaker who is really thinking about what's 
on the page, on the screen, in between the lines, mm. and around the auditorium as well. The fact that this is a film, in some ways, about the you know Hollywood being saved by the power of cinema, <laughs> yeah, it, it, without saying any spoilers, he's using his directorial pen as he has in Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards to rewrite history here in a fantastical spin. But by doing that, he brings together two of the biggest stars of current Hollywood to show that we can make movies that have uh, style and point and intelligence to them, as well as being fun and, and provocative yeah I mean nowadays it seems like every time we come on this show every few weeks we're having to talk about the new Disney live action movie or the new superhero movie and listeners to this show will know that I quite like superhero movies mm-hmm. but he I love superhero <laughs> movies <laughs> Getting, getting called out, getting called out on my own. It's fine. Well, I, I, I did give Endgame five stars. So, Endgame yeah. was good. I don't care what anyone <laughs> says, but I, I feel it. I feel that kind of hunger for these films that make you kind of remember why you love going to the cinema and why you love talking about movies. And this is one of those films. I think it really does demonstrate what you can do if you give a director <laughs> a budget and some stars and a bit of time, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't think there are many directors who can command that anymore. Yeah. I don't think there are many Tarantinos out there who, not for lack of talent, but just for lack of studios not wanting to, to take a risk them. or to give them the money or, you know... <laughs> now I'm going off on a, on a tangent, but we only have to look at kind of the number of projects that have been cancelled since the Disney and Fox merger mm-hmm. to kind of understand that... It is worrying, you know, is there going to be a lot more of these kind of big budget, big name films, and mm. which are wholly original? I don't, I don't know. I, don't I, almost, I almost feel that this is, it, what's happening here is that it's almost similar to like publishing, where mm. I almost see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as like an amazing long read. Right. And, and, and you kind of got to wonder, would I prefer one amazing long read a month or like 20 little short hot takes would I sacrifice those for one big one Mm -hmm. and I've kind of thought maybe I would you know like Mm -hmm. not that I'd want to see fewer films being made I feel that like Tarantino has like paid his dues I mean he's kind of come up through the system and Reservoir Dogs first film was a hit and uh, and you know it's it's been upwards from there so I feel that he's kind of earned the right to make this movie sorry you, you were going to well no something. I was saying that you mentioned uh, Marvel in passing there even <laughs> this film has a sort of subtle Stan Lee cameo because there are a couple of Stan Lee written comics that appear in certain shots oh. I think in fact Brad Pitt when he goes back to his uh, trailer and he's feeding his dog and kicks back he's reading I think it's like one of the cowboy comics <laughs> that was being published yeah. uh, in that sort of early Marvel age, um, which I found very interesting. I wonder if that's Tarantino. Of course, he's mentioned comics before well, in I... Kill Bill and True Romance as well. I wonder if that's him tipping the hat to Stan Lee as probably the subtlest of the Stan Lee tributes we've had this year. <laughs> I mean, I guess the guy's going to make a Star Trek movie, so Tarantino doesn't really care about franchise <laughs> fever. But um, the amount of talent, I think, assembled in this cast can't really be undersold I think obviously you know Leo and Brad aside it was really nice to see Margot Robbie kind of getting this I think there was so much said about this role and before anyone had even seen the film and then of course in Cannes there was the whole press conference disaster where I think it was Time journalist said um you know, why doesn't she have much screen time? And Tarantino got quite huffy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the way she's utilised in this film is just perfect. I think she is very much the heart of the film, this kind of girl. That's offensive. This this woman who is really at the start of her career. She's not thinking like Cliff and 
Rick are about, you know, them coming towards the end of their career and kind of panicking wildly. She's really full of this wonder and this hope and this energy and light that um, I think it couldn't be more obvious that Tarantino obviously holds Sharon Tate in very high esteem Mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of, I think, mourns the idea of this woman more than anything. But at the same time, I think he does go to a lot of effort to make it not feel like she's just this manic pixie dream girl. Mm -hmm. She does... Robbie especially brings this real warmth to Mm -hmm. her and this real personality. There's a great scene where she goes to watch her own film in a cinema, the film which we'll be talking about in a minute, The Wrecking Crew, which is a terrible film, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think you can tell from watching it, because in the film you're watching her watch the actual footage. So you've got Margot Robbie sat there. In a fairly empty cinema. (laughs) In a fairly empty cinema. It's the first time I've really watched Margot Robbie in a film and felt like, oh wow, yeah, I kind of get what everyone's talking about now even like I Tonya I didn't get mm-hmm. the feeling I got watching this that she is really well placed to play uh, Sharon Tate and you know you just feel this kind of like pull towards her you want to and I'm glad he trying to you know went back and put some more of her in because you watch her just walking around going to a rare bookshop to pick up a copy of Tess of the Durbervilles just living her life and living this life that she never got to yeah. live in real life and I think it's yeah I keep saying sweet, but it is. It's just really lovely. I think that Wrecking Crew scene will go in, in down as one of the great Tarantino scenes. Oh, I know that Guillermo del Toro is a man that believes in cinema, but so does Tarantino. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. And we should plug the video interview that Adam Woodward did with uh, Tarantino oh, yeah. and Margot Robbie, and he asks them that question, did you ever go and see your first appearance in a major movie at the cinema? And Tarantino says that when Reservoir Dogs was playing around LA, he saw every <laughs> single screening for the first week or whatever. They didn't and, know who was going to ever make another movie. <laughs> yeah. I think that, you know, I don't pretend to know the mind of Tarantino at all many books could be written about the mind of Tarantino <laughs> but like you say I think he really does believe in cinema and if you love cinema you know this is a movie about yeah. that kind of the agony and the ecstasy of watching movies making movies you know the, the whole kind of start to finish process and the whole Manson thing which we've barely even talked about right. is such a kind of small part of that but I will shout out another great scene in the film on the Spahn Ranch where the Mansons kind of hung out, I guess. <laughs> Which again is like just a kind of masterclass in tension and proves that Tarantino, for as much as he's good at staging a shootout in a tiny bar underground, you know, he can also kind of absolutely just ramp up the tension with nothing more than kind of silence and Lena Dunham and Dakota Fangs like <laughs> kind of giving Brad Pitt evils. Yeah. I think, you know, for this to be his ninth film and it mm-hmm. still feel like he's trying new things and pushing himself as a filmmaker is really kind of remarkable to me. Yeah. David, you saw this outside of the Cannes bubble. How did all this play for you? Were you, were you on board with Once More Time in Hollywood? Yeah, yeah, I was on board. I've got some issues with it, but I think it's one of those films where I don't think it's that easy to just come out and and have a very kind of binary take on it, like, yes, it works, no, it doesn't, because there's so much tinkering with context and the way that information and history is presented, it's kind of put through this mill of all these various influences. I've thought about the film a lot, and, you know, it's essentially like this apocryphal tale of these two characters Mm. who didn't really exist but were sort of... Composites. Composites of various influences and... And we're watching them go, move through the, in, not just move through the industry at this kind of key time, 
but actually um, looking at how they affected the reality of, of history and of the, what, what we know it and how their presence fed into the Manson murders, which were going on and which they kind of, in a, in a sort of roundabout way, become implicated in. The, the more I think about it, it's very... This isn't history, I don't think. It's, this is pure fantasy. Mm-hmm. Going back to Marvel, a world, a term that you hear uttered over and over again is world building. Mm-hmm. But in Marvel world, I think for me, I find it done in a very kind of schematic way that is just pushing, you know, world building is purely for like franchise purposes and getting you to the next film, to the next one, to the next film. Whereas this is its very self-enclosed thing where every element is Tarantino fantasy. The way mm-hmm. cinemas look, what they're playing, what what people eat, what people mm-hmm. listen to, <laughs> the adverts on the radio, the way people dress, even the attitudes as well. I mean, like one thing you really get from this, again, a bone of contention among many people is is this idea that he absolutely hates hippies. Like, the, you know, the, <laughs> the broader context is that the Manson murders signaled the end of the Summer of Love, 1969, it's the sixties were over, man. Mm-hmm. They're selling hippie wigs down Woolworths. You know, it's it's that kind of <laughs> it is that kind of moment where the dream dies. This kind of you know sun bleached sense of like euphoria, of free love, of happiness. You know, getting rid of the of the starched fifties. It's gone. You know, and 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 a new era is going to be rolling in soon. There's a feeling that this is a film as much about that reality as the the fact that Tarantino resents that reality mm. and trying to imagine what if what if the 60s lasted forever i'm not going to show you what that would look like but i'm going to offer you my case of like why the 60s were great look how cool the post the film posters were look at the mm-hmm. soundtracks look at the music that was playing look at the cars people drove i think what makes this film great is that it's got this kind of two-pole thing where you have the story itself and the characters which are some of his best I think and most compelling but you also have this granular production design where like every shot is packed full of stuff there was a tweet written about this where it was like oh this film is a, is a film that you could write a book on straight away and I sort of thought ho oh, 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 that's just <laughs> someone being like you know over the top but then genuinely like that tweet has kind of stuck with me quite a bit and I think that like if you were to go through and meticulously unpick everything here there is just books worth of stuff you know reminded me a bit of american graffiti which was our first ever film club especially the sound design of like you've got snatches of songs Mm -hmm. and people listening to the radio and it doesn't just get this idea of what people listening were listening to and what people were watching it was like how they were watching it Mm -hmm. and And the rhythms of the narrative are driving around exactly driving around town you get this sense of where things were placed Mm -hmm. and what hollywood boulevard felt like and but it's all pure fantasy Mm. i feel that like tarantino has done his homework by watching an absolute incredible amount of crap probably (laughs) (laughs) but actually he's like the way he's written this film is like he's filtered that through rather than just throwing it all up on the screen i mean the references are i don't necessarily i think meant to be taken in in a sort of narcissistic like performative show of like look how much i've done Mm. to, to actually build this film look at how much energy i've put into every element of this film's production design is like it is actually like this is my fantasy mm. join me <laughs> also, I, as, as well i think we talk about it being his, his fantasy i think it could feel like 
you know, Tarantino have been like, ah, oh, these damn kids moving on with their mm. Xboxes and Game Boys, like uh, another... Like Jim Jarmusch. Like Jim indeed, Jarmusch. Yes. Um, but it, to me, as a youth, it felt very kind of bittersweet. I think that Tarantino's done a lot of soul-searching and kind of recognises his own limitations as a very privileged white man in Hollywood who made some very violent films in his younger years, which have constantly, I think, been in a state of reappraisal and reevaluation ever since they were made. And this is kind of a through line in the whole film. There's like reckoning with your own growing um, obsoleteness. <laughs> you yeah. know, this is the whole thing that Rick's kind of dealing with the whole way through is what if this is it for me? Whereas Cliff is the other side of the coin and that he's like, well, we had a good ride. You know, mm-hmm. he's very like kind of content content yeah he just Maybe doesn't he doesn't even, mind yeah. like and that's what makes him so cool you know he's just like oh I'll just stay at home and eat mac and cheese with my dog you know he's very but also oh it could have felt to me a bit like old man yells at cloud you know mm-hmm. it could have felt like tarantino raging against this like this new system and this new world that's coming which doesn't really necessarily need men like him filmmakers like him but it doesn't i mean i think one of the things that really amuses me about the film is that he's brought in all these young actresses who he's friends with their parents basically like Maya Hawke uh, who is Uma Thurman's and Ethan Hawke's daughter and Margaret Qualley who is Andy McDowell's daughter and Kevin Smith's daughter Kevin Smith's yeah. daughter oh right. I can't remember anyway he's got this whole cast of kind of the offspring of people who were either born in the 60s or like growing up in the 60s and that, that to me seems like an indication that he acknowledges like that there is a whole new class of kids coming through and the fact that they're such prominent faces that he's cast to me feels like a very like conscious opening kind of his arms and being like, yeah, I know that I'm not going to be around forever, but there are kind of people who I trust with this, you know, world that we're going into, this brave new world. And maybe that's just me projecting. I don't know. I guess the criticism in, in some ways is always going to be you projecting. Yeah. But I think, yeah, I, I really was kind of ready to ready for this to feel like a reactionary, like rallying, raging against the, the machine. But it doesn't to me. It feels like a fairy tale, which mm-hmm. is what it is. But at the same time, it doesn't have any kind of malice behind it. I right. don't, I think it, as I said it, as I keep saying it, it's a, it's a very sweet film, but also very honest, I mm-hmm. think. And, far less angry than I think a lot of his other films feel. Right. But, Hannah, what scores did you give? Oh, I mean, uh, it was a four in anticipation just because I think there was always that worry that this could really be the most poor taste thing (laughs) possible. And then a four in enjoyment and definitely a five in retrospect. I've been through this twice now and I think... It's one I could definitely see myself going back to quite easily. It's really like ranking pretty high at the top of the Tarantino totem pole for me. I think it can't be sort of understated enough if you love cinema, if you love films about films, if you love films about loving films. It's, <laughs> it really does feel like a kind of a great achievement for him. Oh, terrific. David, your scores? I would probably say I've only seen it once. Mm-hmm. I'd probably say it was... Um, Fours across the board. Right. I find it very, very enjoyable and lots to uh, sink your teeth into. I think there's some questions that I have about its intentions and I think maybe there's an argument that it's kind of... I'm trying to sort of avoid spoilers here that 
I'm not sure I, I love what it amounts to. Yep. Like it's a very kind of in the moment enjoyable thing, whereas afterwards I maybe felt a little bit, mm, you know, if it's doing what I think it's doing, then I'm not sure if I see value in it. Mm-hmm. But but it's definitely something I want to revisit because I think there's, you know, as I say, is a book's worth of stuff in there and you could probably see a different film every time, really. So I'm excited. So maybe a, a sort of four, four, five. I think for me it's a four, four, three, but I only saw it in Cannes. I think I discussed it with Charles Romesco even on, mm. on this podcast back then. Or was it, were you on that episode, Hannah? I can't remember. I can't remember. Go way back into the May archives <laughs> and see four, four, three, but I think on reviewing it, reviewing it, it might go higher. But listeners, really, you, you sport of choice this week. If you want to go for Quentin Tarantino, if you want to go for Christian Petzold, you, you're laughing either way, I think. But we do have Film Club to get to, which is for Once More Time in Hollywood. We are going to revisit Sharon Tate's The Wrecking Crew. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yes, now time for The Wrecking Crew. Sharon Tate had credits in only five films in her short career, and this spy spoof was the last one in her lifetime. She appears as Freya Carlson, a ditz from the Danish Tourism Bureau who turns out to be from British Intelligence, alongside Dean Martin as counter-agent Matt Helm, who is tasked with bringing down an evil count who's threatening with the financial stability of the world. Here's the trailer. One billion dollars in American gold en route to London was stolen from a train in Denmark. We can't send in a task force. It's got to be a one-man job. Uh, Let me guess who you got in mind. Lie down. I want to talk to you. Oh? I'm a gypsy, Mr. Hell. My father was a gypsy. And he taught us one thing. Wise man 
enjoy pleasure before business. Uh, I like your father's thinking. Okay, so Film Club each week is a really great opportunity to revisit old classics, maybe restorations, maybe hidden gems. So, David, where does um, The Wrecking Crew fit into that? Mm. <laughs> well, I think it might be worth re-emphasizing this idea of, uh, of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood being pure fantasy because there is, as we say, a scene in the film where Sharon Tate goes to see a midday performance of The Wrecking Crew and they're all laughing really hard at the film. And having seen the film, I'm not sure I buy that in the cold, hard reality. This is the fourth film mm-hmm. in the Matt Helm saga after 1966's The Silences, 1966's The Murderer's Row, next year's we got The Ambushes, and then we got The Wrecking Crew. And at the end of The Wrecking Crew, we even get a little tee-up yeah. for... The Ravagers. Matt Helm will be back in The Ravagers, but he wasn't back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Tarantino can imagine what The Ravagers would have been like for his next film. But um, So Matt Helm is a kind of sexy spy played by um, <laughs> Dean Martin, and <laughs> he sort of slinks around in various colours of turtleneck uh, and um, is brought in, you know, to save the world. It's a sort mm. of weird knockabout spy caper... I think it's about an hour 45, but it felt like three hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's yeah. like every scene is like wading through custard. I mean, yeah. it's like it is so <laughs> slow. You know that kind of Garth Marenghi joke where they say, oh, I take Garth's books and make them thicker. You know, <laughs> When he, he sends me the first draft and I just make sure the book looks mm-hmm. thicker, whether that's increasing the font size, <laughs> you know, adding more pages. Mm-hmm. It feels like this has happened to this film. This is a film in like size 72 font. I wish I'd had time to do the due diligence and watch the entire Matt Helm saga really so I do. could have actually placed this uh-huh. within the, uh, the four films. But from what I understand, this is by far the worst of the okay. four. And yeah, Dean Martin... He's introduced, like, I can't even, like, describe his his kind of, his introductory scene. I think he moonlights as, a, as some kind of fashion photographer. Mm-hmm. And it's this kind of weird proto-Me Too nightmare where he's, like, lying on a chaise long in this bit of scrubland, surrounded by scantily clad women who were kind of, seem to be fulfilling his every whim while he he photographs them. And, you know, he's ignoring his hotline, which is calling because he's having so much fun. And there is the sort of spoof James Bond element, but also it's very much the films that Mike Myers was spoofing with Austin Powers. It's a charming relic, shall we say. (laughs) There's not a lot of it that makes sense now. Phil Carlson, the director, he has this kind of underground reputation as being this guy who was he was a company man working in the system just doing the jobs that he was given flipping between genres making noirs westerns comedies just whatever came down the chute and i think that there are these like hardcore tourist types who are kind of yeah phil carlson man mm. and so he was making films through the, the 40s and 50s and the matt helm films were his first significant hit so it took him 25 years to actually hit kind of financial pay dirt and then the, the series quickly went the way of the dodo. Thankfully, I think, maybe. <laughs> so I, I watched this in a, in a pristine HD restoration, and 
All I say is some films weren't meant to be restored in that way. It makes Dean Martin look ancient. He's only 50 in this film, and his skin is a leather tone. And <laughs> there's a scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where Brad Pitt, aged 55, takes his top off and the entire <laughs> cinema swoons vapors. at once. You can hear the vapours. And I don't want to right <laughs> <don't> think about <laughs> Dean Martin in this film taking his top off. I don't know what will happen there. I mean, he, he, he looks hungover in every shot <laughs> to the point where I'm thinking is that intentional like, i mean it's like he's two scotches in every every single take there are so many scenes that he, where he just wanders into a room <laughs> sorry and as you say it's, it's just thickening out the film but he, he's checked out at this point he only had a few films after this and then his yeah, yeah. on-screen career was pretty much over and then he came back in the kind of ironic cameos, cameos in, yeah. in cannibal run this is the thing that made me laugh actually I didn't really laugh at Sharon Tate's pratfalls, which, you know, were a bit uncomfortable, but, like, actually, obviously for added value, that they've got Dean Martin crooning on the soundtrack as well. Yes, yes, yes. So, like, he'll enter into a scene and a Dean Martin song will come on and it's like, but his character isn't singing it and it's it's kind of not not connected to anything that's happening on the screen. There's, I kept there's, watching there's, his lips, like, is he singing now? No, he wasn't, he well, wasn't. There's, there's one scene where, well, uh, we should talk about Sharon Tate's character in this, Freya, who's introduced as this ditz wearing glasses and, uh, you know, is this tourism bureau officer. And then as she gets, later on in the film, she has a slightly, you know, sexy makeover. And one of those scenes where Dean Martin singing voiceover comes in is where he walks into the scene and she's getting changed just out of shot. And he's like, oh, I can't see your face, but I like your legs. Yeah. It's, oh, it's leery. That's all <laughs> Hell, uh, God, um, Hannah, what did you make of, of the Wrecking Crew? You know, on this podcast, there are a lot of films we watch, and this has to be one of the worst. <laughs> I mean, it's just, oh God, it's not my thing anyway. But the way that I watched this film as well was on this like Daily Motion Vimeo stream, where the image and the uh, sound were wildly out of sync, and that was more entertaining than what was happening on on the actual in the actual film just would kind of be like oh okay so you know that that scene from 10 minutes ago is finally catching up with the uh, with what's going on but yeah i mean what can you really say about this film it's you know it's not even like well sharon tate is really good in it because she's not like no one no. is good in this film <laughs> i wouldn't say it's her fault or dean martin's fault or really any of their faults it's just a very bad film mm-hmm. <laughs> the whole premise i'm still trying to wrap my head around it so a billion dollars of gold were stolen from a train mm-hmm. and it and it's enough to cause a global financial crisis. Yeah, it was the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, sure, why not? You know, it's the kind of thing now if they made it with like Gerard Butler in the lead role, I think people would actually really turn out to see it. Maybe they should do it. Maybe it's right for Bring a remake. Bring back Matt Helm. <laughs> I've got to say that there is a, a retrospective moving element seeing it in the light of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and there's a moment in Once Upon a Time of Hollywood where they juxtapose a, a sequence where she has a, a fight with the, the villain's Asian mistress who's mm-hmm. called, wait for it, Yu Rang. Mm-hmm. Lol. And then um, they're having a bit of a kind of kung fu dust up in, in a room. I mean, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, has all these, which I think is quite weird for Tarantino, has all these like comic cutaways that you kind of associate with like almost like Will Ferrell comedies. And one, <laughs> But one of them is really moving where you just it cuts away from this fight to her training with Bruce Lee yeah. and you know there is that sense of like 
she's taken this really seriously and you don't know what a film's going to be like before you are in it and you can only do the best that you can really mm-hmm. and ho- be hopeful that it's going to get you your next one which is also the story of Rick Dalton as well yeah. so I think that little shot of, of her training is superior to the entire film but I mean well it, Tarantino has form with maybe making you look differently at yesterday's tr- middle of the road trash yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe even actors that he's refashioned into new stages of their career and maybe this can just go alongside those every time a film comes out and he'll go on the on the press junket tour it's almost a drinking game of when will Tarantino first reference his love of William Whitney, mm-hmm. who is this B-movie westerns director and war movie director who he absolutely adores. And he mentions it every time around. And I think he's on this one man, like, I'm going to make William Whitney the new tourist <laughs> uh, poster boy. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I think it's interesting that, that he's picking out these things that would otherwise be completely oh, lost to history. And I think that he did a a thing for TV where he picked 10 films that had been influential for Once Upon a Time and I think that the films he picked for the TV were maybe like I was hoping that there would be a few more like really naff ones Mm -hmm. but the ones he picked were actually like more critically acclaimed films but a future film festival of of films on the marquees in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The Night They Raided Minsky's. I've never never seen it but almost like hmm I quite want to see that now. Uh Well now he owns the new Beverly maybe petition yeah. him we to, should all uh, go there truth and movies truth on tour and, truth to and the movies on tour to, yeah that would be a dream wouldn't it if anyone wants to sponsor us to go to Los Angeles and well, check if Quentin out Quentin wants to invite <laughs> us out there I know he listens <laughs> so The Wrecking Club not a great movie Wrecking really? Crew what is it? Wrecking Club. Club. Wrecking Club. That's what we are. I mean, that's the sort of thing that would have got into the script of the Wrecking Crew alongside yeah. one of Dean's howling uh, one-liners. So Wrecking Crew, not a great movie, but a pretty good session band, I will say. Um, okay. That's this week's movies. Up next week, we have Pain and Glory, the latest from Pedro Amodovar, and the documentary Hail Satan? Question mark. I don't know how to. I, I'll go all anchor Hail Satan. <laughs> yeah. Hail Satan. In this economy. And for Film Club, because Pain and Glory is out in cinemas, we're going to look back at Pedro Moldova's All About My Mother. You can let us know what you think of those films or anything we discussed this week at the usual channels at Truth and Movies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email or the comments section at lblies.com slash podcast. David, Hannah, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm Michael Eder. As always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.